All right, the large catechism, and we're on part five, the sacrament of the altar, and we did a fair amount of review last week, so no need to do that again this week. We left off at paragraph 22, that's page 434 in your reader's edition, and remember, if you're not using the reader's edition, the pagination doesn't matter. You can still find the large catechism, section 5, on the Lord's Supper, and the paragraphs are all numbered the same, so you can flip to paragraph 22 and see where we left off. Picking up in paragraph 22, about six lines, five, six lines from the bottom, Luther writes, Therefore Christ asks me to eat and drink, so that this treasure may be my own and may benefit me as a sure pledge and token. And you can recall last week we spent some time talking about what it means to have forgiveness of sins um, in reality and then to have a pledge and token of that forgiveness of sins. It's a pledge and token precisely because it requires faith. It's, it's something we must, be, we, we must believe. Um, even the forgiveness of our sins isn't manifest. There's still temporal consequence. There's still death. There's still all these things. And so... You know, the forgiveness of sins can only be grasped by faith, but soon enough by sight. You know, as we pass into death, it'll be by sight. As we, our bodies are raised, it'll be by sight. And we'll see uh, the effects of our sins undone. We'll see death undone. We'll see Satan's reign undone. Um, and so it will not be by faith, but by sight. But for now, it's not by sight. It's by faith. And so no problem whatsoever talking about the sacraments as a, as a pledge and token um, as well as a reality. And Luther then concludes this paragraph, In fact, it is the very same treasure that is appointed for me against my sins, death, and every disaster. And we spent some time talking about each of those aspects last week, but where you have the forgiveness of sins, you also have the undoing of death, and you have then all disasters in this life become relativized. All the temporal sufferings that we go through are indeed temporary, their relative sufferings, their, you know, I think maybe, maybe that, that more than anything else takes the sting out of the various burdens, afflictions, and disasters we experience as we realize in the first place that they're temporary and the second place that God will work them for our good. And what anchors us in these ways of thinking is the supper is the New Testament in the cup of Christ, his blood poured out for us. You know, as the, as the heart of Christ is opened up quite literally with the Roman spear, so by Christ crucified, the heart of God is opened up and opened to us, poured out for us, so that we can know who, who our God and Father is, how much he loves us, in what way he loves us, and then... I'm getting a little feedback here. I'm going to just have to... There we go. Yeah, sorry about that technical difficulty. I'm just going to have to turn that down because I was starting to hear myself in a round of echoes. Not, not conducive to clear thinking. <laughs> ah, where was I? Yeah. So we gained, we, gained the, we gained knowledge of the heart of God via the sacrament, you know. Again, I don't mean to be pedantic about it, but in the sacrament you learn Christ, and in Christ you learn God. In the sacrament, you learn the cross, and in the cross, you learn God. And, and this is the very anchoring. This is the very New Testament. This is what makes us, and that's, well, I mean, maybe baptism makes us disciples, but this is what sustains our discipleship. 
It's what sustains us in the one true faith. It's the center of Christianity. It's, it's the center of our identity as Christians. Um, and so then, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> as Luther says, this treasure is appointed for me against sin's death and every disaster. All right, into the new material. I don't, I, I don't know if we're able to interact uh, in any way, probably even, even less of a chance since I just turned down the volume on the TV. Uh, but if you do have some kind of a question, if you want to wave your hand desperately if you're on the Zoom connection, I'm, I might be able to see you, and then I might be able to turn the volume up for just a moment and entertain whatever, whatever thought or question you have. Um, otherwise, I'll just, I'll just have to keep going on with the monologue, which isn't an ideal way to do theology. I always prefer, th I prefer theology as dialogue, but alas, what are we going to do? Paragraph 23. On this account, it is indeed called a food of souls, which nourishes and strengthens the new man. For by baptism we are first born anew. But as we said before, there still remains the old vicious nature of flesh and blood in mankind. There are so many hindrances and temptations of the devil and of the world that we often become weary and faint, and sometimes we also stumble. Therefore, the sacrament is given as a daily pasture and sustenance that faith may refresh and strengthen itself so that it will not fall back in such a battle but become ever stronger and stronger. The new life must be guided so that it continually increases and progresses. Okay, let's stop there. We obviously have a lot to consider. Luther calls it the food of souls, not to be mistaken by a Calvinistic Reformed view. Luther is well before any of that, where in the sacrament, uh, Calvin and uh, the Reformed who follow him will end up saying that in the Lord's Supper, the eating is done with the soul. Uh, Luther... <laughs> if rather the you know the eating that's done with the lips in Calvinism isn't of any isn't of any effect it doesn't do anything the lips are receiving bread the soul is receiving Christ that's not at all what Luther means here nor do you find that anywhere in the words of Jesus or anywhere else in Scripture again this is all just subterfuge it is a it, it is a way of trying to weasel closer to Jesus' words while still denying them. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Calvinists, thoroughgoing Calvinists want to say, no, it isn't his body and blood that I receive in my mouth. It isn't that. His body and blood in some sort of spiritual way I receive in my soul. Okay, well, that distinction simply puts one away from Jesus who says, take, eat, pointing to the bread that is his body, take drink, pointing to the cup that is his blood, and then his body and blood are received uh, in our mouths, on our lips, on our tongues. Um, a Calvinist won't confess that. Luther means no such thing here when he says um, that it's called a food of souls. Rather, as the context clearly shows, the new man, the, the soul proper for the Christian, the new man that is born anew through the water of baptism, 
is then sustained by the Lord's Supper as daily food, as daily sustenance. And so it's the food of souls in that sense. It's the food of the new man. That's the point. Um, so you can see Luther saying in paragraph 23, for by baptism we're first born anew. Okay, and then what do we do? The, the old vicious nature still clings to us. And so uh, baptism, of course, covers that in its own unique way. As, as not baptism past tense, I was baptized, but baptism present tense, I am baptized. And so baptism uniquely addresses that ongoing sinful nature that remains in us. But so does the Lord's Supper. And maybe even more so the Lord's Supper, at least in this respect, that the Lord's Supper is to be done often as the words of Christ indicate. And so because even though we are God's baptized children, the sinful flesh clings to us. And, and as Luther says, you know, there's so many hindrances and temptations of the devil in the world. We often become weary and faint and sometimes we even stumble. And so then what is our medicine? What is our medicine in these instances? And clearly it is the Lord's Supper. When, when our sins grieve us, then we want to go to the Lord's Supper and receive the forgiveness of sins directly from our Lord. And so that's the, that's the point then of the Lord's Supper within the economy of salvation, if you will, the order of salvation um, as given to us. All right, so that kind of takes us through paragraph 23 and then paragraph 24. The sacrament is a daily pasture. Interestingly, this is, this is one of two places in the immediate context here that refers to the sacrament as a daily Food. In some places, it was no doubt being offered daily. And, when, and throughout Christian history, that's been the case, that in many times, in many places, the church has offered the Lord's Supper on a daily basis, which, of course, is also very fascinating when you take that along with uh, that petition of the Lord's Prayer that says, Give us this day our daily bread. And the language there in the Greek, it's well known, doesn't translate into the neat, tidy little English package we have. There, there seems to be much more to it than the neat, tidy little English way we have of saying it, which seems to indicate nothing more than, um, you know, make sure I have my McDonald's and my Starbucks today. Um, give us this day our daily bread. And yeah, we're, we're praying for something different and more deep than that. I mean, that is certainly included. The food and drink and the clothing and shoes and the house and the home are certainly included. But the daily bread, is it not primarily the one who is the bread of life? Is it not Jesus? And then the closest extension of that would be to say it's the, it's the, it's the bread that is his body. It's to consume of that, that true manna, that true bread that comes down from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, that's a little bit of a tangent. But again, fascinatingly, Luther here calls it daily pasture, and as we'll see in you know, a few pages away, um, he again refers it, uh, it to it in a daily way. He says it's daily administered. <clears throat> he calls it a pasture here, and as the editors pick up, you can see from the bracketed quotation of Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 through th 3, they see this as, as an allusion to the Lord's Supper as fulfillment of Psalm 23. I think it's right to do so. When we talk about the Lord as our shepherd, we mean very specifically Jesus Christ is our shepherd. Put shepherd in, in Latin, and it's the Lord is my pastor. And then he leads me beside still waters, and you can think of baptism and the green pastures. That's where you feed. You can think of the Lord's Supper. Later, of course, in Psalm 23, 
you know, the, the psalmist confesses um, uh, that, that I sit at your table in the midst of my enemies and, and my cup overflows. And so both in the fulfillment of Christ and the New Testament that, that happens at his table and with his cup, I mean, all of this pushes forward the true meaning and the true fulfillment of Psalm 23 in the Lord's Supper. Where he, where he sets up a table in the, in the midst, in the presence of our enemies. And of course, that, that's not intended to be the other people in the congregation. <laughs> some people wrongly think of it as such. Well, and then in some instances, maybe it's true in its own right. But more like this, here in the, in the kingdom and the, and the world of the devil in which, in which God in Christ Jesus has invaded and is overturning the works of the devil um, in the presence of principalities and powers of darkness all around us, nonetheless, we have this table of the Lord in the midst of our enemies and we eat and are sustained and are fulfilled and are given strength and, uh, and our weariness is replaced with joy. All of this happens, and then the cup that he gives to us overflows with forgiveness of sins, with grace, and with mercy. And so you can see how, you know, all of this is a bit of an aside, admittedly, but you can see then how Psalm 23 speaks of the ultimate fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. It is our daily pasture and sustenance. You know, which is why it hurts so bad to be on uh, quarantine and not be able to reach the supper and have the supper. What can we do if, if it's not available to us or if our health or circumstances prevent us from uh, partaking of the supper? Well, we can meditate upon this gift of God, give thanks to him for it, recount all the times that he has bestowed this gift to us, and then we can long for it in a good and holy way. Um, longing, uh, as, as Paul says, for the pure spiritual milk of his word, longing for the pure life and salvation that comes to us in the body and blood of Christ, and um, you know, hastening the day through our prayers by which we might return and partake of this gift once more. So, again, all of this um, just very good to have in our, in our hearts and in our minds. And now, very interestingly, also in paragraph 24, it's given as a daily pasture and sustenance, Luther says, that faith may refresh and strengthen itself so that it will not fall back in such a battle. Now, what here for Luther is the battle? Well, as he's mentioned, the battle's certainly against the devil and the world, but it's also against the sinful flesh that resides within us. Okay, the, what Luther calls the old vicious nature in the previous paragraph. So, the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, we see that triad uh, appear here once more. And so, so, the Lord's Supper is meant to strengthen the new man, to strengthen our faith, so that we will not fall back in such a battle. And then look what Luther says, become ever but become ever stronger and stronger. Isn't that an incredible thing? It's a scriptural thing. It's also a large catechism thing. And yet Lutherans of the late 20th century have been some of the most vociferously opposed to this idea that we would in fact become stronger and stronger. But that is precisely the language of the catechism here, precisely the language of the scriptures elsewhere. 
And, the, and it is really the point and purpose of receiving the Lord's Supper, not just forgiveness of sins. Like That's not like a pig goes, goes to the farmer, gets washed so that he can go back to the mud and get filthy again and get washed. You know, we're not getting washed for the point of getting filthy again. That, that's, to, that's to overturn the, very, the, the proper use of the sacraments. I, it's frankly to fall into the ex opera operato use that just by doing of the doing itself I'm justified that we accuse Rome of doing in the 16th century or that the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament accused the people of doing with the sacrifices. You know, in the Old Testament, so frequently you, you hear this refrain of like, in the first place it's strange because God commands the sacrifices and then God says in certain places, I despise your sacrifices. I don't want your sacrifices. What's going on there that God commands it and they give it and then he despises it and doesn't want it? Well, what's going on is simply this. The sacrifices are to communicate to them the forgiveness of their sins and they're using the sacrifices in exactly this way, like, like a pig that basically comes and gets clean just so he can get dirty again. In other words, the sacrifices of God become the servant of sin, not the servant of righteousness. Now, by parallel, that's precisely the danger of baptism and the Lord's Supper understood as, well, I just, go, I just remember my baptism and then go back to sinning. I just, and, and you can remember how Luther rails against that back on um, Oh, what is it? I probably have the reference here. I think it's back on page 430. Oh, yeah, it is. It's page 430. L Luther rails against that as, as the proper use of baptism. It's not. The proper use of baptism isn't so that we just, you know, hey, I'm clean so I can go do whatever I want, and then I just remember my baptism so that I'm forgiven so that I can go do whatever I want. That's the misuse of baptism. And so, too, it's by parallel, it's the misuse of the Lord's Supper to think in this way. We go to the Lord's Supper to receive forgiveness, and from that forgiveness, strength, so that we can begin to stand against the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. Now, admittedly, this is never perfect. Thus, we are to go often to the supper. But that is the purpose, is that this is uh, to strengthen us, not to be used as um, like a servant of sin, but rather as that very thing that empowers us to defeat sin evermore in our life. So, there's that language again. I'm, I'm sorry if... Uh, if you don't like it, but it is, it is just clear as day here that um, we are to get stronger and stronger. And then, very interesting also, um, <laughs> that's funny, isn't it? it we, we number these by paragraphs, and this one sentence gets a paragraph all to itself, paragraph 25, which is one sentence. And this comes right on the heels of... Luther saying that we that it will not fall back in such a battle. Strength will, I mean, faith will not fall back in such a battle, but become ever stronger and stronger. The new life, Luther writes, the new life must be guided so that it continually increases and progresses. This isn't a throwaway idea in Luther's Catechism. Once again, we've seen this before really over and over again, but especially in the article on baptism. The new life is to grow, is to increase, is to progress. And in fact, 
it's a, we're going to see this again here. We also saw it in the article on baptism. It's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum equation. Either the new man is becoming stronger and the old man becoming weaker, or the old man is becoming stronger and the new man is becoming weaker. It's simply one or the two. You can't have it that they're both increasing in strength. You can't have it that they're both just sitting there neutral or indifferent toward one another. No, the things of the flesh war against the things of the spirit, and the things of the spirit war against the things of the flesh. So, this battle rages within us, and our strength to fight that battle, our strength to grow stronger and stronger, our strength to continually increase and progress, comes precisely from the sacraments. And here Luther has specifically in mind the Lord's Supper. So we're going to see this idea fleshed out by Luther throughout the remainder of this, of this section in his large catechism. This isn't a throwaway line. This is foundational for the proper use of the sacraments in general and the Lord's Supper in specific. Okay, I, I, I'm seeing a hand-waving. I don't know if that's because people are adjusting things on their screens. So if you do want to say something, kind of maybe give me one of these. Um, okay, all right. So I am seeing a hand. So let me try to turn this up. Let's, let's test our technology here. This will be interesting. All right, you want to try? Um, Pastor, mm -hmm. this is Annette. Um, I was wondering if you could um, explain more how Scripture, uh, you said it, it, it's in Scripture as well as Catechism that the sacrament of the um, body and blood um, and communion strengthen our faith, our faith. Can you give me some scriptures that support that? Okay, yes. So, so the question that's being asked, for those of you who maybe couldn't hear it, um, I had indicated when treating Luther's language of growing ever stronger and stronger, I'd indicate that this found not only in the catechism, but also in the scriptures. And the question is, where in the scriptures do you find an express teaching that the Lord's Supper is there to make us stronger and stronger? That, um, I'd like to make a clarification there. That wasn't so much what I was referring to in specific. It may well be there. I'd have to think about it. I might even have to go looking for it. What I really intended by that statement was the idea of growing stronger and stronger is found throughout the scriptures. So, more gen generally speaking, the idea of maturing, the idea of growing, the idea of progressing from one glory to the next, um, the idea of being ever more conformed into the image of Christ, of being ever more fully human, uh, of being um, you know, more in control of ourselves, these ideas are found everywhere in the New Testament. Um, now, so, what is the source of this movement that you see in the New Testament? Well, it's the New Testament itself, which Jesus says is his cup. So that, that life, that the life is in the blood, the life in the blood of Christ that enlivens and gives us life, then flows through to give us life and vigor and strength so that we uh, progress, so that we mature, so that we grow, so that we are transformed, um, so that all of these, all of these scripture, things that the scriptures speak about find their source, not in human willpower, uh, not in you know, seven steps to a better you type of thing, 
but in the cup of Jesus, in the life of Jesus bestowed to us. So, by way of clarification, that's simply, simply what I meant there. Okay, let's, uh, let's go forward. So once again, paragraph 25 and then right into paragraph 26, the new life must be guided so that it continually increases and progresses, but it must suffer much opposition. For the devil is such a furious enemy when he sees that we oppose him and attack the old man and that he cannot topple us over by force, he prowls and moves about on all sides. He tries every trick and does not stop until he finally wears us out, so that we either renounce our faith or throw up our hands and put up our feet, becoming indifferent or impatient. Now to this purpose the comfort of the sacrament is given when the heart feels that the burden is becoming too heavy so that it may gain here new power and refreshment. So here Luther describing very eloquently that just because you take the Lord's Supper once doesn't mean you're so empowered over and against your own sinful nature and the world and the devil that you're, you're now free from all sins. As too many of us have experienced, no sooner do you have the, the Lord's Supper, I mean, your lips are practically still wet with the blood of Jesus, you get in your minivan to drive home, and all hell breaks loose in the car, and you've already sinned before you've even gotten two miles from church. Again, this, this is the kind of experience that sadly is common to us as Christians. The flesh in us, the flesh in others is so strong that you know, even though we grow stronger and stronger, even though we progress, um, the enemy, uh, you know, Satan in specific here, he just attacks us all the more craftily. Uh, you've noticed this if you've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe if you've been self-reflective, that you know, as you've moved past like certain behaviors, certain habits, certain things, and you've left you've left these things in the past, it's not like Satan has been like, oh, okay, I'll leave you alone. No, he simply tries harder and becomes more elaborate. And that's really what Luther is getting at here. And so then, then we, we need to always go back to the sacrament. In fact, you know, it's, it can be demoralizing in the sense that you make progress in one area maybe and another area you fall down. Or you make progress and you think you're making progress and you have a major setback. Or, you know, these things are very common to us. It's why we have the sacraments, why we have confession absolutions, why we have the Lord's Supper. And Luther's simply drawing that out. It's like, look, even though this is the purpose of the sacrament, don't expect the devil to go, oh no, he had the Lord's Supper today. I'm going to leave him alone. Um, she's had the Lord's Supper twice this week. I guess, you know, there's nothing I can do there. No, the devil rages all the more and comes at us. And so, um, as Luther says here then, and this is worth a little bit of analysis because it's just interesting. Um, halfway through paragraph 26, he, namely the devil, tries every trick and does not stop until he finally wears us out. And, you know, that's, that's so much of the devil's temptation as you kind of move along, too, is it's like you just get, you get ground down. And I've, I've lamented this before in a more general sort of way, that evil has every advantage and good doesn't, you know. You can, you can win, like, like umpteen battles 
over a sin and then give in one moment and it ruins everything, right? And you get no credit, like, I'm not going to be short-tempered. I'm not going to be short-tempered. I'm not going to be short Ah, you know, and, and that's it, like, right? It's ruined. You, no credit in the eyes of anyone else for all the temptations you fought, but you failed in the one place and that's all there is to it. So, the, the, you know, the devil and evil have all the advantages here. What's funny is, is that, you know, Christ wouldn't have it any other way and he's going to triumph anyway and he's going to have us triumph anyway. And so... Uh, through the forgiveness of sins and through the continual strengthening until we overcome many of these things. But the devil tries to wear us out, no doubt about it. Um, to the ultimate end, and this is where Luther goes, so that we either renounce our faith, we certainly don't want to do that, but it, you know, again, if we don't go to the Lord's Supper, like that's where you, that's where you get to in this battle because you go, oh, the battle's futile. You know? and, and you can have any kind of response to that. But a lot of people fall into despair at this point and go, well, I'm not pulling it off. Maybe other people are pulling it off, but I'm not pulling it off. And so, so you can get worn out, and then you can end up renouncing your faith in that way. Like, I must not really be a Christian. I must not be able to do it. Well, what's the answer if that's where you're at? Don't give up. Go to the Lord's table. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Be strengthened once again. Realize that it's His righteousness by which you are justified, not your own. And it's not your battle against your flesh and the devil and the world that gains you salvation. It's Christ and Him alone that gains you salvation. So rest, relax, realize that everything is fine because your Savior has already shed His precious blood for you. And He pours it out for you in the sacrament so that you may receive it. And then the strength of that is like, okay, so, so my ultimate destiny is determined entirely by Christ. My justification is before God is determined entirely by Christ, and it's done. That's the foundation upon which I can stand and build and fight once more. You know, I'm not standing and building and fighting in order to earn my salvation. Christ has already done that. And standing on that foundation, I'm then equipped to fight once more. So, you know, when we feel worn out, when we feel um, like, like, you know, renouncing our faith or throwing up our hands. It's like what you need to do is go to the sacrament. Luther says throw up our hands and put up our feet. You know, that's the idea of kind of just despairing and giving up, um, stopping fighting, you know, just, okay, it is what it is. It's not how we want to be as Christians. We need to go to the supper. And then as Luther finishes up, becoming indifferent or impatient. And there's more here in these two words than just, you know, kind of throw away lines. The indifference is... Um, you know, and I didn't check the exact language here to see if Luther quotes it this way. But indifference, theologically considered, is often overlaps or is identical to this idea. Um, I think in English we pronounce it acedia, and then in Latin you often hear it acadia, and then in Greek acadia. But it's one of the seven deadly sins, and it, it means uh, effectively spiritual apathy. It's it's perhaps, I mean, many, many theologians and pastors have commented that it really is the, the sin of our times. Uh, when you look at the church, there's a spiritual apathy. Oh, it's, I, I mean, not to get too pointed about it, but I'm going to anyway. It's kind of this idea of like, well, going to church once a month is going to church regularly. Oh, ah, you know, Disney is more exciting to me than the Lord's Supper. I mean, this, this is like... This is like deep into Achadia, deep into um, spiritual sloth, spiritual apathy. Like, 
oh, I don't need, I'm not going to wage war against my flesh. I'm just going to remember my baptism. I don't need to study the Bible. I know all there is to teach. I I know all there is. I've already been taught it all and learned it all. I don't have any business in the small catechism. I've progressed beyond that. I mean, all of these thoughts are really um, indifference, acedia. And so it's it's a big deal when you fall into that. Um, Acedia often goes right along with um, what we've seen the confessors call security. So when you're in acedia, you're, you're never terrified by God's law. You're never finding yourself in need of God's grace. There's no, there's no passion. There's no poignancy. Um, and, and really then, so, so that's like we're kind of talking about the symptoms and what it is or the root symptom being acedia and then the symptoms that... You know the second layer of symptoms that spring out of it. You know, and if you go if you go deeper to if you go just a little bit deeper, it's that, you know, you you've allowed the devil to wear you out. You've allowed your sinful flesh to wear you out, such that you become indifferent. Okay, and then Luther says, or impatient, which is a second spiritual condition. And once again, there's much more here than meets the eye. I think when we think of impatience abstractly. And this is true. We tend to think mostly of pride because it's pride or arrogance that, that is at the root of impatience. You know, you're not willing to give people the, the time or the benefit of the doubt or the grace that you want for yourself. You value your time more than theirs or your energy more than theirs or, um, or you don't think you deserve this in life and that in life and so you're, you become impatient with all of it. You know, fine, well and good. But what we're going to see in a paragraph coming up is that Luther puts patience in, he lumps patience in with, uh, so here we're talking about impatience. So what is patience positively? He lumps it in with faith and love. Now typically in scripture what you see is the triad of faith, hope, and love. And here you come to understand then a, a more, a different and maybe more deep understanding of patience, theologically understood as hope. So what does that mean? What does that mean in particular? It means um, patience or hope in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of our burdens. Okay? So to become impatient is to throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm done with this. And, and really this takes con- concrete form so frequently in our vocations. You know, I'm I'm done with my spouse. They're never going to change. I'm done with my children. They're just thankless, greedy little takers. You know, um, I'm done with work. The people all there are all terrible. Um, this, these are, um, this is impatience. This is lack of hope as a theological virtue, as a fruit of the faith. And then ultimately, um, this, is, uh, this is not bearing the cross in the way that Jesus bears the cross. It's not bearing affliction as a son. It's not um, enduring hardship with faith and charity and hope or patience. So, um, again, this is um, just spiritually considering these maladies of the soul that overtake us, and we can diagnose ourselves. And So, just like with indifference, with acedia, when we find ourselves 
impatient when we find ourselves giving up on um, vocations that we're called to or chafing under afflictions. You know, this happens sometimes when we're sick or injured or we have some other physical limitation and we let it get the better of us. We feel like it's permanent. We feel like it's not fair. We can fall into impatience, to lack patience, to lack hope in the midst of an affliction that God has imposed upon us. Um, so what, here is the answer. Well, same with indifference. We go to the Lord's Supper. Um, same with impatience. We go to the Lord's Supper. We receive his forgiveness. We remember him and his cross. We remember his perfect faith in the midst of affliction and how that's credited to us. You know, as I pointed out recently, even on the cross, you know, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we often focus on the forsaken part. Um, he is indeed forsaken by God. He's not lying. He knows um, and he knows in a way that none of us can know. And yet he also says in perfect faith, my God, my God, you know, God of me, Eli, Eli, um, God of me. So there's perfect faith in the midst of the cross, and we learn this by going to communion. And we learn this in a twofold way, of course, that his perfect faithfulness, his perfect righteousness is credited to us. So again, take a deep breath. It's not up to, to you to justify yourself. He has done it. It's finished. By that, be refreshed and strengthened and take heart so that then you can wage war. And instead of thinking like in the old way you were thinking of like, it's not fair, it's not just, this is just too much, it's just too terrible, and you grow impatient. Instead of thinking in that old way, think of how did my Lord handle the injustice of the cross? He and he alone who is truly innocent suffered and suffered in absolute humility and lowliness and obedience to the Father and love for the Father, and that becomes the pattern and the paradigm. So that's how I want to be. You see, it's a change in the will that takes place. I no longer will that it be fair. I will that I be conformed into the image of my Savior, Jesus. So it's a shift in the will and then a shift in perception that takes place. Anyway, all of this comes to us from the Lord's Supper. And I know this may kind of strike us as just sort of throwaway lines like, wow, why did Pastor Rody spend so much time on indifference and impatience? I'm sure Luther didn't. Because these are deep conditions of the soul. And we used to understand this, I mean, much in our, like in our country today where we just really don't have a very good grasp on mental illness, what causes it or how to treat it. Even less do we have a grasp on spiritual illness or how to treat it. The ancients understood spiritual illness and illnesses of the soul much better than we do today. Gregory the Great wrote a book about it in, I think it was the 6th century, uh, his, his pastoral, his pastoral care. We got to read it in seminary. It was like the textbook for a thousand plus years. Luther read it, and it's all about the care of souls and the cure of souls. Um, thinking in terms of, uh, I mean, really, frankly speaking, uh, both the practice of medicine, the healing of the body, and the practice of psychology, which ideally is the healing of the, of the mind, um, those things flow from this deeper healing of the soul. And, of course, you have Jesus being the great physician of our souls. So you can see that this is a biblical way of thinking. Recognizing these maladies, here are two huge ones, indifference and impatience, really help us to see those things within ourselves and become self-aware and then know what to do. Confess them as sin, be forgiven. Go to the supper, be forgiven, be strengthened. Fight against them, find a new way to think, find a new way to believe. That's what this is all about. Okay. My goodness, I haven't made much progress today. Sorry about that.
if you're one who likes to really move along, I apologize. Uh, but I did want to pause because these are things we don't often get an opportunity to talk about. Let's look at, let's look at paragraph 27. I'll try to make a little bit more progress here in the time we have. Now, to this purpose, the comfort of the sacrament is given when the heart feels that the burden is becoming too heavy so that it may gain here new power and refreshment. But here are wise spirits, of course, Luther means this sarcastically, and these are the fanatics, these are the people who don't believe that the Lord's Supper is Christ's body and blood and certainly don't believe it's for the forgiveness of sins and so, certainly don't believe that there's any benefit to it other than their own mental machinations as they do the remembering. Luther writes, here our wise spirits twist themselves about with their great art and wisdom. They cry out and bawl, how can bread and wine forgive sins or strengthen faith? They hear and know that we do not say this about bread and wine, because in itself bread is bread. But we speak about the bread and wine that is Christ's body and blood and has the words attached to it. That we say is truly the treasure and nothing else through which such forgiveness is gained. Now the only way this treasure is passed along and made our very own is in the words given and shed for you. For in the words you have both truths, that it is Christ's body and blood and that it is yours as a treasure and gift. Now, Christ's body can never be, be an unfruitful, empty thing that does or profits nothing. Uh, this was one of the claims on the, ba you can kind of shadow read this, one of the basis of the claims of Zwingli was uh, John 6, where, where it said the flesh profits nothing. And so, I mean, think of how ridiculous this is to apply that, the flesh profits nothing, therefore Christ's body profits nothing. I mean, if you were going to be, if that's true, then Christ's body on the cross profits nothing. Right, so that's what's going on here, though I simply point that out. Christ's body can never be un an unfruitful, empty thing that does or profits nothing. Yet no matter how great the treasure is in itself, it must be included in the word and administered to us. Otherwise, we would never be able to know or seek it. Therefore, also it is useless talk when they say that Christ's body and blood are not given and shed for us in the Lord's Supper. So we could not have the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament. Although the work is done and the forgiveness of sins is secured by the cross, it cannot come to us in any other way than through the word. You see, and this is a key, these lines here. If you're new to Lutheran theology, if you're new to thinking about this, these are key lines. The work is done. The forgiveness of sins is secured, won by Christ, once and for all on the cross. But now, how is that, that forgiveness of sins distributed to us? How is it given to us? How does that event that took place 2,000 years ago come present tense to us? And then the answer is through the word and sacraments. Luther has here the word, and in specific means the words of institution. My body and blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So just picking up there where we left off, middle of paragraph 31, how would we know about it otherwise, that such a thing was accomplished or was to be given to us unless it were presented by preaching or the oral word? How do they know about it? 
Or how can they receive and make the forgiveness their own unless they lay hold of and believe the scriptures and the gospel? But now the entire gospel and the article of the creed, I believe in the holy Christian church, the forgiveness of sins, and so on, are embodied by the word in this sacrament and presented to us. This is a lovely and wonderful teaching that I wish I had time to go into. Um, if you're very interested, just look at or recall in your mind the third article of the creed. You know, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Christian Church, etc. With each one of those phrases, you can see how it is the Holy Spirit through the Lord's Supper that gives and bestows these things. You know, the church is constituted on the, the church as the body of Christ is constituted by the Lord's Supper because in partaking of His body, we become His body. And thus, we become members of His body. And this is where the language of membership enters the church. It's not as we often mistakenly think about it, being a member of a club and thus a member of Faith Lutheran Church or a member of the country club or a member of the swimming pool or whatever it is. That's not what we mean by membership. We mean that by partaking of the body of Christ, we become the body, and we as individuals are members of that body. So wherever you commune, there you are part of the body of Christ in that place, and you're a member of, of His body in that place. Okay, so that whole third article of the Creed uh, is really given to us concretely by means of the Lord's Supper. Four lines from the top of that right-hand column on page 435, paragraph 32. Why, then, should we let this treasure be torn from the sacrament when the fanatics must confess that these are the very words we hear everywhere in the gospel? They cannot say that these words in the sacrament are of no use, just as they dare not say that the entire gospel or God's word apart from the sacrament is of no use. In other words, the argument is, look, the sacrament agrees with the scriptures, and so if you're going to say that the sacrament is of no use, you're going to say the scriptures are of no use. The sacrament is the gospel. That's why Jesus says, this is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay. Now, in our last here 30 seconds, what have we covered thus far? Well, if you remember, Luther's treatment begins with three questions. What is it, in reference to the Lord's Supper, what is it? What does it do? And what benefit does it give? That's the second. And then the third, who should receive it? Okay, so we've now sufficiently covered the first two points. It is the body and blood of Christ, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Why should we receive it? For the forgiveness of sins, which not only takes away sin, but also death and eternal damnation. That's really what we've covered heretofore. Next week on paragraph 33, we'll pick up with the third question, who should receive this sacrament, or more specifically, who receives this sacrament worthily? Beginning at paragraph 33, uh, really through the conclusion of the large catechism, we have the answer to this question, along with some wonderful summary teaching on the Lord's Supper. So let's engage paragraph 33 next week, and I'll look forward to hearing from you this week on which book you would like to read, and then I will hopefully be reporting those results to you next Thursday. The Lord be with you. So, Pastor, can you hear me now? I can, yes.
Oh, wait. Can you hear me? I, I've got the mic on. Yeah. 